You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome back to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Elisa. And I'm Yvette. We've done a few podcasts recently exploring the military side of national security law, and this is another one on that theme. I am really excited to introduce Lieutenant General Retired Flora Darpino, the 39th Judge Advocate General of the Army and the first woman to hold that position. Welcome, ma'am. Oh, it is wonderful to be here with you guys. Thank you so much for inviting me. Regular listeners know my disclaimer. I suspend my informality when we welcome senior military officers, but our civilian listeners should mistake that and assume that they aren't approachable. In fact, I was fortunate enough to meet uh, General Dorpino right when she was elevated to TJAG, and I was working for the Army General Council. And I got to say, I worked with her team and her fairly regularly in that job, and she is absolutely wonderful. It's awfully sweet of you to say. I appreciate that. Okay, we're going to go over a little bit of her bio here because I know there are young listeners. They're trying to see what is the path up, what is the path in. How did other people do it? And also it's great for people who are not familiar with her or the role that she played, significant role that she played. And it's nice to know what her background is. So of course it's impressive. She was in uniform from 1987 to 2017, having earned her BA from Gettysburg College. She got a JD from Rutgers and a master of laws in military law from the Judge Advocate General School, uh, which she later commanded. She served in numerous legal positions throughout her illustrious career, including as a civil and criminal litigator and staff judge advocate, basically the boss of that base's legal office, both stateside and overseas. And as we've mentioned, she served as the judge advocate general, the head uniformed lawyer for the U.S. Army. So let's start off with a sense of what your time was like at the beginning of your career. Well, as you said, Elise, it was uh, 1987 when I first came in. I had uh, no prior military experience at all, so I really had no preconceived notions of what I was walking into. Turned out that there were very few women in the Army JAG Corps, you know, single-digit percent, and it was obviously a male-dominated organization being the United States Army. I was first stationed in Germany with my husband, I actually came in the Army because he had an ROTC scholarship in college, which is where we met, and he owed the Army time, and I didn't want to take a bar exam everywhere we were stationed. So it was a good thing I came in because I don't think I would have been able to practice law in Germany, but it was during the Cold War. And as I said, I really had no preconceived notion of what it was going to be like. We would get phone calls in the middle of the night with like a code word. And we would throw on our uniforms and rush across the city of Stuttgart to our base. We would draw our weapon and draw our bags because the Russians were, you know, flying through the Fulda Gap for a force-on-force war. And that, that's what the Cold War was. It was very real to us in Germany. Even went through Checkpoint Charlie in uniform with my husband And uh, it was kind of like, get smart. You know, there were all these doors that kept opening and closing behind you, and you never knew what was going to be in the very end. But our focus at that time for the JAG Corps wasn't really like operational or, or national security as we think of it today. 
it was really, like I said, the, the war plan was, you know, two huge armies like hurling themselves at each other. And the Jags were probably going to be in the rear uh, doing their lawyer thing. And uh, we deal with POWs and trying to figure out with those prisoners war, how to sort them. In fact, I even went to an exercise once and there was a cubicle and an exercise is where you do like your war game practice. And there was a cubicle and I walked into the cubicle and I said to the guy who was replacing like, you know, what do I do? Like, what's my job? He said, you, you answer the phone. And I looked at the phone and I said, well, what do I do when I answer the phone? He goes, ah, don't worry. It never rings for the Jag. Well, the wall came down in November of 89 and I got there in 87 and everything changed. We had a new mission and well, the phone started ringing. So it started ringing a lot after 9-11 and you kind of talked about the changing role from, okay, we're going to call the Jags back in the rear um, in the Cold War, but in 9-11, you guys were much more forward deployed. Can you just talk a little bit about how the Jag perspective shifted? Wow. Um, I will never forget that day. I was at Fort Hood, Texas. I was the staff judge advocate of the 4th Infantry Division. My husband was the staff judge advocate of the 1st Cavalry Division, which as you mentioned, as a staff judge advocate, you're in charge of that legal office for that entire unit. I come out of PT, which is our physical training. I'm in my uniform, you know, big army across the chest, all sweaty and gross. And I get a call from the chief of staff. And he says, come on up to my office. You know, we need to talk about a few things. So I go up there in my uniform and I'm standing there and he has the TV on. And at 7.46 our time, 8.46 New York time, the plane goes into the tower and we both sort of look up at it and we're standing there like still talking, looking at like this. And then the second plane hit and the chief of staff yells out to the commanding general, who's a two star. And he says, you know, get in here, sir, sir, come in here. And then he walked and we both looked, you know, they both looked up. I'm standing there in my PT uniform, as I said, and the CG turns to me and he says, you go get into your uniform. And then he turns to the chief of staff and he says, assemble the staff. It's a moment I'll never forget because as you said, things changed. This was not a mission we had trained for. It's not something that, you know, we were focused on. We're focused on fighting and winning a war on a battlefield. And that day, our mission was to protect the U.S., to deploy to sites, sensitive sites throughout our part of the country. And I'm telling you, there were like really no rules or experience to help us with what was going on. I mean, do we shoot down planes? What about people coming to the gates? Our posts weren't even fenced at the time. Some of them had highways going down the middle of them and we had to protect that. Who, who can load their weapons? We're not supposed to be protecting America in that way. As I looked around the room and the staff meeting and these things are going through my head, I realized I wasn't alone. I had the rest of the professional staff there. I had my great team of JAGs downstairs. Um, but this was definitely the JAGs job to sort through this, to figure out what the rules were when the rules weren't written anywhere. And you're right. We were no longer sitting on the sideline waiting for the phone to ring. I, that's just honestly so cinematic. That's why I'm really excited to um, welcome you here. One of the taglines of our podcast is, you know, you should get into national security law if you want a front row seat to history. And you are talking about having the 
front row seats. I'd love to hear a little bit since we just passed the 20th anniversary of, you know, the 9-11 attacks. I'd love to hear the legal perspective a little bit more deeply. Listeners who were around at the time, because, you know, we do have young listeners who were in diapers um, at the time. But if you were, you know, if you're a sentient being and you were a lawyer, you might remember that all of the TJACs from all those services uh, testified against enhanced interrogations. And in retrospect, it seems that they were right since those practices are actually still to this day complicating the prosecution of enemies that attacked us 20 years ago. I'd love to get your thoughts about that, that moment of the TDACs all testifying and what it meant to the integrity of the JAG Corps across the military. Wow, that's a very interesting question. You know, the JAG Corps has kind of always had this very important role in the military. And because of that, an extension to society, you know, being a JAG officer takes moral courage. Uh, we are often the one person in the room that is gonna say no, even at our own personal peril. And, and that is not always easy. As I said, it takes moral courage. But I have always found that I have been respected by both my colleagues and my bosses because they always knew I was gonna tell them the truth. And they could rely upon me to tell them the truth. They may not have always liked it, but they respected it. And by extension, the JAG Corps earned their respect from having the courage to tell the truth. I was also part of my responsibility was to determine what their actual goal was and then help them achieve that goal if possible in a legal way. But always knowing that if there was not a way to get where they wanted to go, I had to have the moral courage to say that can't be done. Now, why do I say that? Why did I go through that little litany to answer your question? It's because that's what JAGs do. And so I have no doubt whatsoever, even though I was not in the building at the time, but I have no doubt whatsoever that everything the TJAG said that day in their testimony, they had already shared with people in positions of power within the Department of Defense. They had spoken the truth to power before they testified. So it was not a surprise what they would say. And when Congress calls them to testify, they will testify truthfully because that is their duty. That is the oath that we take. Does it still take moral courage? Yes, but you expect as an American citizen that those in public service will have the moral courage when you are asked to demonstrate it. All right. Well, that is something that has come up again recently, 20 years hence. I'd like to get your thoughts on sort of where we are on what some people look at as a morass, sort of the unending military commissions. We recently saw news about how seven of eight of the panel members in one case condemned the treatment of the accused by the United States and pressed for clemency. And uh, just for our listeners, and correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, General, but panel members are like jurors in military commission cases. And so what do you think upon reflection? Here we sit literally almost 20 years since Guantanamo. Where are we at this point? You know, as many know, the, the military commissions fall under the Department of Defense, You're not under the services, the Army, the Air Force, the Navy. 
we are what are called force providers. We give the bodies to do the business, but they are run by the Department of Defense. And I will say that the enhanced interrogations, I think is the term that's used, and I say that in air quotes, have often been ascribed to individuals in uniform. And as you noted in your last question, or as I noted in the last question, the JAG Corps has held very firm on the fact that enhanced techniques, again in air quotes, cannot be employed by the military as they violate the Geneva Conventions. All that said, and while the commissions fall under the Department of Defense, the evidentiary problems that we see really cannot systematically be attributed or assigned to those in military. That may be a dodge, but I can't really comment on something that our TJAGs very strenuously said should not occur and that military should not be involved. And so these problems that have been potentially created or appear to have systematic and evidentiary problems are not attributed to us in uniform. But unfortunately, the consequences of those actions have reverberated and have had a strong impact on the JAG Corps and on the commissions. And it's another example of how one decision, one action, and one part of government can have a tremendous impact on the other part of government. And I guess I say that listening to you, I'm reminded of something that I think it's hard for the young lawyers to think about, which is you really have to see things not just from the immediate, but also from the potential consequences, not just to your case, your immediate situation, but the long-term consequences, the reputational damage that could be suffered by the United States and so on, as well as damage to cases that can't be made and statements that would be suppressed and so on. It's a, it's a dark topic. It's a heady topic, and it's one certainly we would like to draw you out about more, but I think it's also important in a podcast to go ahead and talk about what your experiences were otherwise as a TJAG. So um, first of all, let's, let's do a bit of a primer here, which is why don't you tell us what the difference is between TJAG and the Army General Council? Oh my. Well, Yvette um, certainly knows that while the TJAG and the, and the General Council have different assigned roles, a healthy and honest relationship between the two of them certainly yields the best results for the Army, and for the country. There, there is just no question. But the TJAG really kind of has three roles, and they're overlapping in some ways with the general counsel. And certainly, like I said, they have to be cooperative and collaborative. The, the first role that a TJAG has is statutory, and that is that they're responsible for the selection, assignment, training, management um, of the JAG Corps, which is in the Army about 100-plus strong um, both in the, in the Army, the U.S. Army Reserve, and the National Guard. And, and doing that job right as TJAG, making sure people are assigned in the right places, they're trained appropriately, and they're managed well, is what ensures that legal advice is properly given across the Army and across the world, you know, in, in all areas of the law. The, the second role the TJAG has is more local, as in, in the Pentagon, and that is that they are the principal advisor to the chief of staff of the army, the, the lead, the head uniform individual in the army, and also to his staff or her staff, the army staff. Uh, much of that churn that you see in the Pentagon that JAG officers do in the Pentagon in that role, the super under supervision of the TJAG, is really like about the day-to-day -day operations. 
of the army and the implementation of all the policies out there. It's really just the business of making the army run and advising the staff and making sure that that happens. The, the third role TJAG has is that you're an advisor to the secretary of the army. And that also is in statute. And this is where it gets more complicated. But for military justice, the general counsel is the principal advisor to the secretary of the army. And so while the TJAG is also an advisor, the principal advisor to the secretary is general counsel. And the secretary of the army, as you all are aware, has that civilian control over the army. He or she sets that policy and issues the directives to implement that policy. And then the army staff and all those go out and they make the regulations and all of the different policies that then influence what the army does in those areas. They're the ones, the army staff is the one who makes it happen. So the general counsel has that primary and principal role of providing the legal advice to that civilian leadership. And in many ways, the TJAG then, in advising the Army staff, helps to implement that through their legal advice. All that said, it is just not that clean as a matter of practice. Issues overlap. And most importantly, it is that the secretary is going to seek legal advice or seek advice from their military advisors, like that chief of staff, like those Army staff members. And TJAG is advising them. So what this means is lawyers have to do what lawyers do, which is that we as the TJAG and the general counsel, as the two people advising the two entities, that civilian and that military leadership, need to coordinate. They don't always have to agree, but they need to understand and respect each other's opinions. They need to try to come to a consensus after a discussion and admit when maybe they were misguided or wrong or a little off after considering some of the other factors involved to set aside their own ego and do what is best for the service. And in the end, the best decisions are always made when everybody is at the table and everybody is listening. And so in some ways you can say TJAG has primacy here and you can say general counsel has primacy there, but for things to be done and done well, and done in everybody's best interest, the two of them coordinating and being honest with each other and trying to come to an agreement that makes the best legal sense is in everybody's best interest. Well, thank you for laying the groundwork for my next question, which is, you know, we, we got to ask where one of the missions of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security is to bring women into the fold and highlight the achievements of women. And that's one of many reasons why we asked you to come and be our guest this week. But I was just wondering what it was like to be the first woman serving as TJAC for the Army. And I, is it annoying to be the first and to get that question all the time? Well, I wasn't the first TJAG, so I can always answer the question that way. TJAG of the Army. <laughs> T-jag of the I know, Army. I know. You, you did say that. <laughs> but I can say I wasn't the first TJAG. Of course, we have Vice Admiral Nan Dorenzi. Uh, she has the honor of being the first TJAG, and she was the TJAG of the Navy. And she was in that position when I was selected for my job. Being asked about being the first, you ask, is it annoying? I won't say it's annoying because I think it's important for the individual who might be first in anything to be willing to speak about it so that folks see that it is achievable. And so when I was first selected, Nan Dorenzi invited me to lunch. And we had mutual friends, but I had never met her before. 
And I'm telling you, she was just a normal person. She was somebody that you would go on a run with or go to brunch with, have dinner. You know, she was another Italian girl from Jersey. And there's great comfort in people seeing that people who have achieved the first in anything are just normal people. Because sometimes we forget that people who have achieved some things aren't because they're extraordinary. It's that maybe they grew up in a ton of extraordinary times and they just happened to rise to that occasion in those extraordinary times. And there were other people that in different circumstances could have been in the exact same position. But it was also important to know that I kind of don't define myself by my job. Like I don't tell people what I did. I define myself and always have by the many dimensions of me, which is like, I'm a mom of two daughters. It's the most important job I have ever had, not being TJ. My, my job was to raise two strong, independent, and sassy women. That was my biggest achievement. And being an army officer and all those things just helped be that role model of what I wanted them to become. Not necessarily army officers, that was their call, but to be those strong and independent women. And with that as like a bedrock, it, it kind of made many of the decisions that I made a little bit easier um, because the army was, not, was a priority, but it wasn't my only priority. And so in making decisions, I could say, is this good for the army and the JAG Corps? And get rid of the noise that was like, is this about me? How does this make me look? Instead, what's going to be important to the Army and the JAG Corps? Because the most important thing was my kids and my husband, I should say. I should add that in there, shouldn't I? I really want to kind of just speak to that, that notion that general officers are normal people, because especially, you know, coming up from the bottom up, you, you look at those stars as a young lieutenant and you're kind of awestruck. And I just remember when I, when I first met you, ma'am, I was out of uniform. I, w- I was medically retired, but I, you told me that you were, I met you at the JAG school and you told me that you're going to be TJAG. And I just reflexively hugged you. I was so excited and you were so <laughs> lovely that you didn't call security. Um, and you were one of those normal people that people like me could look up to and really kind of like see themselves in, okay, you know, I, I can do that job. So thank you so much for for being that person and being, you know, so warm in that, in that moment. (laughs) I definitely, you know, before we let you go, we just want to note, generally speaking, pun intended, uh, retired general officers really don't love speaking out about current events. Can you just talk about the tradition of neutrality and what are some of the circumstances that kind of draw retired senior officials out into the public? This has been happening more and more recently, And, you know, can you just like talk a little bit about that shift? Yeah. Well, thank you for recognizing that uh, retired GOs typically are reluctant to speak out about current events. And maybe that will allow Alyssa to forgive me for dodging some of the earlier questions that I was asked. Really, the reason for that is that the U.S. military is very, very cognizant of the fact that we are subordinate to civilian leadership. And it goes back to our foundation. People all out there know the story maybe of George Washington resigning his commission before he became president. He didn't want to wear his uniform. He didn't want to be called general. 
any of that because our framework has the military subordinate. Thinking of it a different way is that Americans don't expect to like wake up one morning and find out that overnight there was a coup and the military was now like in charge of the country. That concept is so foreign to us as Americans, whereas it is very, very common in other structures. And preserving that sacred trust, that trust that you're not going to wake up in the morning and we're going to be in charge in uniform, that trust is sacred, as I said, because that means that we serve our country, not our own interests. Like I had said previously, it wasn't about me. We have to continuously remember that and remind the public that it's not about us. It's important. It's that sacred trust. I I think a recent example that I'm going to use is when General Milley found himself in the midst of a political photo op at Lafayette Square. A firestorm followed papers, everything. There was outrage that a member in uniform would be part of a political photo op. Even Milley himself, you know, said, and I'm just going to quote him, my presence in that moment and in that environment created a perception that the military is involved in domestic politics. And that is not a place where we belong. Now, should we in uniform disagree strongly with a policy or a decision, we must make our opinion known to our civilian leadership. We said before, that's our moral courage aspect of our job. We have to make that opinion known. And as we take an oath to the Constitution, if we're called to testify, we will testify truthfully. When we're confirmed, we're always asked that question, and we say we will, and we have. And if all else, we will always can resign if we cannot carry out that policy, but we don't become part of domestic politics. All right. Well, let's go back to your time as a TJAG. You have to make difficult calls. And it seems like the nature of the job hasn't really changed much. You mentioned some of the recent events, but we've seen that some service members are willing to face military discipline rather than, for example, receive the COVID vaccine, uh, which President Biden has ordered now in his capacity as the commander in chief. Do you have some thoughts about that? Yeah, we have actually seen a very similar issue in the past with the anthrax shots. Like you said, sometimes things don't really change. Individual service members refused to take the anthrax shot. And the courts ruled that the order was valid and the discipline that those soldiers and service members faced was legal. So I find it somewhat regrettable that there are soldiers and service members out there repeating the same mistake by refusing to follow that order. An adverse discharge from the military really can be quite stigmatizing. And I really honestly hope that the counseling that these soldiers receive from both the medical professionals and the process, they're required to sit down with the medical professional. And then of course, they're required to sit down with their leadership. And they will of course have the opportunity to speak to a lawyer who represents them. And I hope through that whole process, as they learn more, that they will be convinced to comply with that valid order to receive that shot. Well, let's hope so, since we are in the middle of really a horrible pandemic, and it would be nice to know that our service members uh, would find their way to make the choice that needs to be made here. But for all of our listeners out there who might be considering 
a career as a JAG, why don't you take a moment, if you don't mind, to give some advice about that choice? Oh my. So if, if I could start just by saying that if I could do it all over again, if I could go back to being a captain in 1987, or even if they could somehow send me back in time and I started today as a JAG officer, I would do it in a heartbeat. I would do it all over again. I loved serving my country and I loved the challenge of being a JAG officer. And this is not smoke. This is the truth. So if you're thinking about becoming a JAG officer, I would recommend that you seek out someone either in the JAG Corps currently or someone who has served in the JAG Corps. If you don't know anyone, you can always get in touch with one of the JAG recruiting offices in whatever, you know, ever service and speak to them and let them tell you about what it is that we do and how varied our practice is and how challenging it is every day and exciting. And if you're thinking about it, and I would say there are three things that you might really want to think about doing, which is first embrace leadership, you know, look for an opportunity to lead out there. You want to know and be ready and be comfortable with being a leader in, in a club, volunteer somewhere at the school for, you know, in elections, something even small, like leading a group project and get comfortable with the idea that you have the ability and the confidence to lead because you will lead and you should be proud of your ability to do that. And the second is enjoy Learn to enjoy physical fitness. You know, we, in the military, it is a physical culture. There's no way around that. And sometimes people will ask, like, why JAGs being physical? Well, first of all, we're on the battlefield with our commanders. And so we got to carry all the stuff that they carry on their backs. We got to do all that. Right. So we're hired for our mind. There's no question about that. But we all know that when we're really, really tired, our brain doesn't work as well. And so being physically fit is so important because then your body doesn't give out on you as quickly in a stressful situation and your brain can continue to work. And so they hire us for the head, but to get that head to work for them, we have to make sure the rest of our body works. And that's why physical fitness is so important. And then the last thing is expect change. You'll change jobs. You'll change locations. You'll change teammates. And you have to embrace it. Uh, you have to expect it. And you will learn to love it because I'll tell you why. You could have a boss that you love, but they won't be your boss forever. You could have a boss that you hate, but they won't be your boss forever. And you'll learn something from both of them. The one you love and the one you hate. And you will carry that in your leadership style. And you will become better because you have had that change and because you have seen different things. And so I, I mean, I really can't recommend strongly enough to take a look at what the JAG Corps has to offer because you will be challenged and you will grow even if you don't stay in for 30 plus years like I did. All right. Well, let's pivot for just a second. When you've had a career as diverse and as changing as you have had, you have to have had one really strange case along the way that you'd be willing to share. I, I think the case that I would want to talk about is one that really helped me grow as a person the most. I was a young lawyer in Germany. So we're talking probably somewhere between 26 and 28, 
29. I was new, still getting my feet under me as a lawyer, which takes a number of years. And I was a defense counsel. And so I you know, wasn't fully involved in cases, but I was a brand new defense counsel. And I got a call that three individuals were having a pretrial hearing and they just needed someone to explain to them the requirements and what was going to happen at this magistrate's hearing. They were three young soldiers. And what they had done is they had hanged a friend in a vineyard and attempted to make it look like a suicide. The reason they knew it wasn't a suicide was that the suicide note had so many misspellings in it. And the young man that they had killed was a very smart young man. And it was obvious he did not write this note. Why they did it was to avoid minor punishment. One of the three of them could have possibly been punished for something that he had done, but nothing serious. It was just minor punishment. One of the three, who was the leader of this gaggle, convinced the others that the correct thing to do was to hang a young man. So young Florida Arpino, who came from a, a good and close family, who believed that most people were essentially good as human beings, sat down that day with those three men and the ringleader, who obviously had no remorse whatsoever. I mean, none. And it was important for young Florida Arpino to learn that, to learn that, well, yes, bad things happen to good people. And not all people who do bad things are bad people. It's equally important to know that there are, in fact, bad people out there. And as a lawyer and a lawyer in national security, it's particularly an important thing to know because you can't approach every issue thinking that every person's motives are pure. You have to be willing to look behind the curtain. And so that is a lesson that I learned early from a case that I believe truly is one of the most important lessons that I've learned in life. Wow. And you defended those people that you recognized as being bad people. Well, I was only the lawyer for one of the three because they had conflicting interests. But yes, that is what we do as defense counsel. That's what the Constitution requires. Wow. I am blown away. I think every young lawyer should hear that story and every young JAG should hear that to understand that the job that we do is not easy and it can be challenging um, to know what the right thing is to do or to wrestle with your own internal morality when you know that someone has done something so horrible, but that the right thing is to stand up to your and fulfill your oath to the constitution and to the military justice system and carry that out. Thank you for sharing that with us, ma'am. We really want to thank you for uh, joining us in the podcast and for just sharing so thoughtfully what your experiences are and your perspective. And we won't hold you up from your sweet, sweet retirement any longer. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. This has truly been a pleasure. I, I enjoyed this discussion. I think it's important for us all to really consider what it is that we do and the moral courage that it takes to be a lawyer in the area of national security and just keep fighting the good fight. 
All right. Well, that's excellent counsel. Congratulations on a job well done as TJAG. And it sounds like a job well done as mom. And thank you for being here. We want to also thank our listeners for tuning in. We do not take your attention for granted. We want to remind you that the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will continue bringing you national security law and topics every week. So hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. And if you have topics you want us to cover or would like to leave us some feedback, communicate with us. You can do it using Twitter. We are at ABA NATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. And don't forget that the lawyers who are hosting this podcast, meaning Yvette, me, we're here in our individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Be well, everyone. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.